Amen. Good morning. Uh, thank you for the privilege of being with you. Uh, and I say that with a little more uh, oomph than you might suspect. Uh, just 14 months ago, um, and seven hours of the operating hospital while they uh, did a couple by part bypasses and gave me a, a new valve. Uh, I'm no longer kosher, I have a pig's valve. Um, and um, cleaned out uh, an artery that was clogged 90%. And um, I, I have no doubt whatsoever that the Lord has extended my days. And since He has, uh, I ought to make good use of them. Uh, we've got more teaching elders at Western Ministry than we've got pulpits, so it's good for us to uh, help our sister churches, and it's a delight to be with you. Uh, when I realized it was a communion Sunday, uh, my heart and mind immediately went to my favorite passage to preach in communion. I checked my notes. I don't think I preached it here. Um, if I have, then just smile say, now, now, he's an old man, just forgotten. But, but you'll need to hear it again anyway, uh, because my heart is greatly blessed. Um, it's the shortest chapter in Second Samuel, and uh, yet I think maybe the richest. I would invite you to stand as I read this very short chapter, the second um, book of Samuel, chapter 9, and... Uh, all 13 verses, 2 Samuel 9. This is the word of the living God. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? Hesed, the strong word for loving kindness, mercy, undeserved, unmerited, um, unexpected. Is there anyone in the house of Saul to whom I show Hesed love for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Could you tell me, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the Hesed of God to him? Ziba said to the king, well, there is still a son of Jonathan. And even though it's not there in the Hebrew, that the sense is certainly there. But he's crippled in both of his feet. In other words, why would you be interested? The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. I intend to show you hesed loving kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the property of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Then the chef paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, 
Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your employees shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. However, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall take his meals at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons, 20 employees. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame, continued to be lame in both his feet. Our Father, we bow before you and we ask that your word would dwell in us richly, that our hearts would be moved and stirred at this beautiful picture of the gospel, that you delight to show to sinners hesed kindness, not based on any merit that we have, but solely on your grace, mercy, and kindness. The word of the Lord lives and abides forever. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts and give us a good and rightful understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let's get our bearings. When we get to the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel, the first dynasty of Israel is completed. Saul is dead. Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, we know based on Genesis 49.10, that Saul could not be the permanent dynasty. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the prince of peace comes, and the obedience of the nations will be his, Genesis 49. And so Saul of the house of Benjamin would not fit that criteria, that the Redeemer the Genesis 3.15 Satan stomper would come from the tribe of Judah. And so now David, first six and a half years of his reign spent in Bethlehem, but in the house of Jesse and of the tribe of Judah. During those six years, there was a civil war. Saul and most of his descendants died together on Mount Gilboa in the battle against the Philistines, but there was a surviving son, Ishbosheth. And Saul's general, Abner, survived, and Ishbosheth was nothing more than a puppet, and Abner was the puppeteer. And, and for a number of years, there was a civil war between the dynasty of Saul and the dynasty of David as to who would rule Israel. After years of neglect, Ishbosheth's armies are defeated. David is secure, and he moves to Jerusalem and builds his palace. 
After years of neglect during the reign of Saul, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, is restored, and David sets up a new tabernacle in downtown Jerusalem, and he goes to the storage shed where the Ark of the Covenant has been for decades and triumphantly restores it to a place of prominence in Jerusalem. David has plans and a great desire to build a permanent house for the Lord, the temple. He has those plans, but he will be denied the privilege of building, but his son Solomon will build it. The borders of the kingdom are secure, and the land is at peace. In just two chapters ago, in 2 Samuel 7, Pastor Nathan has dropped by and has announced to David what you and I call the Davidic Covenant, that someone from the line of David, a descendant of David, will sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever. We understand that covenant promise was fulfilled in the coming of Christ and that Christ is king of the church, the new Israel. Well, what is there for the king to do? There are no battles to fight. The palace is built. The borders are secure. The temple plans have been received. Let's say it's Tuesday morning, and David is uh, out on one of the balconies of his palace overlooking Jerusalem. It's going down memory lane. And he remembers a promise that he had made decades ago to a very dear friend, Prince Jonathan, the crown prince, the one who under normal circumstances would have been the second king of of Israel, the second king of the Saul dynasty. Not because he was a coward, but because of his great love for the Lord and for David. Jonathan had given to David his sword and his belt, emblems of royalty, and had assured David that he would not stand in David's way. Jonathan understood that David would be the king that would succeed his father. Jonathan had made one request. Jonathan had said, when the day comes and you are king, I don't know where I'll be, I, I don't can't predict the future, but I, I just ask one thing. Contrary to the normal practice of getting rid of loose ends from previous dynasties, I'm going to ask that you would show kindness to me if I'm still alive and to any of my descendants if I have any. At that time, Jonathan did not have any family. So Jonathan and David had entered into covenant. And that brings us then to this chapter 9, which is the shortest chapter in 2 Samuel. And some might argue that there is little of theological or doctrinal substance. Would Second Samuel be any less valuable 
if this administrative footnote was left out of the narrative. It's a, it's a little housekeeping. David shows kindness. David kept a, an old promise. Well, I would propose to you that the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel may be the gemstone of the entire book. It is brief, but meaty. It's an Old Testament picture, if there ever was one, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would be tempted to argue that we could lose all the other chapters of 2 Samuel and keep this one, and we would have the richest example of salvation by grace in all of the Old Testament. I have three points this morning for those of you who take notes. One, David, the Redeemer figure. Two, Mephibosheth, the sinner figure. And three, the invitation to feast at the king's table, which will serve as our invitation to feast at this table. One, David, the Redeemer figure. Two, Mephibosheth, the sinner figure. And three, an invitation to come to the king's table. David, the Redeemer figure. As we've read this chapter, we see who it is who takes the initiative. David is at ease in his palace, reflecting on God's faithfulness over the years and his blessing. And he's got time to think about past friendships and past promises. And it dawns on him suddenly that in the busyness of the last few years, he's lost track of any family that may have survived the house of Saul. And he feels this deep obligation to pursue and to be faithful to the keeping of this vow if there are any survivors. David, much like his grandfather Boaz, who showed Hesed loving kindness to Ruth the Moabites. Remember that story, Naomi and Elimelech from the tribe of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem, David's great-grandmother. Naomi and Elimelech had fled to Moab, a nearby country descended from a lot because there had been a famine in Bethlehem. If you had stopped Naomi and Elimelech on the road as they were walking to Moab and asked them, where are you going and why? They would say, well, we're going to Moab, uh, sort of out of a state of emergency. There's a drought, a terrible famine, and, and we're fleeing to Moab to survive. We're taking our two sons. Well, that would be true, but that's not the whole story. Unbeknownst to Elimelech and Naomi, they were really going to Moab on a short-term mission trip. God had selected an ancestor of the Christ from the Moabites, the most unlikely in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Christ, there are four women. I've got a sermon, the four bad apples on Jesus' family tree. The four women in Matthew 1, uh, 
harlots and prostitutes and Moabites. And yet each one in their time, Bathsheba and Rahab, Ruth, incorporated into the line of Christ. Christ came to save sinners. He made sure that was obvious even in his ancestry. And so just as God had sent missionaries of grace to Moab to invite Ruth to become a part of the covenant people of God. So David is stirred by the Holy Spirit. He is going to pursue someone who doesn't really want to be pursued. Genesis, or John 15, 16, we read, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And as Paul writes in Romans 5, that God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, God took the initiative. God took the first step. God sent his son to die for us. But what was David's motive? What did he have to gain? What could Mephibosheth add that David didn't already have? Nothing. Mephibosheth was destitute. He was crippled. He owned no property. He had no resources. You can't tax zero. Mephibosheth could bring nothing to the table. David's motive was unconditional love rooted in the covenant made with his friend Jonathan back in 1 Samuel 20. David had made a promise to show Hesed love to any descendants of the family of Jonathan. And thus Mephibosheth received kindness not based on anything he had done, but wholly on account of a covenant made before Who is Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is the sinner figure in this chapter. Mephibosheth's name means shameful one or one full of shame. Many of you are parents. Was that ever on your list of baby names? Would you actually assign shameful one to your firstborn child? Why would Jonathan do that? Well, that wasn't the name on his birth certificate. In 1 Chronicles 9, verse 40, you have the official genealogy of the line of Saul. And we find that Mephibosheth's birth name, his given name, his birth certificate name, was Merib Baal, M-E-R-I-B dash Baal, which translates he who contends against Baal, a Baal fighter. That's a good name. That's a solid name. That's a name worthy of honor. Jonathan named his son Baal fighter, one who opposes Baal worship. Well, where did he ever get that nickname then? Mephibosheth. Well, if you go back to the fourth chapter 
just a couple pages back, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 4, and you look at verse uh, 4, 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan had come from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she was running in her haste, the child, Maribel, fell and became lame, and from that day on, his name was full of shame, lame one. Back on that day when Saul and Jonathan, other members of the royal family, gave their lives in defense of Israel on Mount Gilboa, the small child, five-year-old toddler, Maribel, was back at the royal residence under the care of a governess, a nanny. Word comes back that a great, horrendous defeat has occurred to the armies of Israel. Alas, the king is dead. And this young boy's daddy is dead. And trying to be a responsible nanny, fearing that the Philistines might march on the royal residence, seeking any other members of the royal family, she's going to try to rescue the young prince who might be heir to the throne. And so she scoops him out of his crib and runs down the stairs and apparently trips, drops him, and in the fall, his ankles are broken. They were never properly reset. And so he is a cripple for the rest of his life. I'm dropping notes on the floor. <clears throat> I might need those notes. <clears throat> well, Mephibosheth grew, and he's now a, a young man in his 20s. As we read late in the chapter, he has a son of his own, Micah. But Mephibosheth has, what we would say today, gone below the radar. When David has come to the throne and his uncle Ishbosheth has been killed, Mephibosheth fears for his life. He assumes that King David will be hunting for him. He is a dangerous, loose end left over from the previous dynasty. He could cause David trouble. The best thing that David could do with Mephibosheth was to eliminate him. Eliminate him. That's what this young man thought. And, and so he has gone across the Jordan River into what is today modern Jordan. A month ago today, I was in modern Jordan, and, and I have a new appreciation for the barrenness of this land where Mephibosheth is hiding out. He's at Makir's house, son of Aniel, in Lodabar. Now, Scripture never wastes time with it extraneous information. Do I really need to know that the name of this far out remote wasteland little village was Lodabar? Oh, I do need to know that. Lodabar means place of no grass, place of no pasture. 
top sand dam, just north of Petra. A good place for fugitives to hide. And that's where Mephibosheth, in his state of crippledness, has been hiding, hoping that David will never bother him, never come looking. But that was sort of the last thought he had each night and the first thought he had each morning. Will troops come over the horizon looking for me? David came from Bethlehem, a house of bread, a prosperous place. Mephibosheth, the shameful one, is living in Lodabar, a place of no pasture. He has no assets. He has nothing that would attract the David. 37th question of our shorter catechism, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Holy Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery and enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Isaac Watts writes in his hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. T'was the same grace that spread the feast that gently forced me in. Else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. Mephibosheth would never have gone to Jerusalem uninvited. That's the last place on earth he ever wanted to be. But the king bid him come. The king ordered him to come. The king sent soldiers. That day came when Phibosheth saw them coming over the horizon and he knew who they were looking for. And he was filled with fear. He was filled with fear. He is brought to the palace and David speaks to him, verse 5. Then David, King David, sent and brought him. Didn't invite him. Didn't ask if he would be interested in coming. He brought him under armed guard. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage and David said, Mephibosheth. What does God say more often in Scripture than anything else? Fear not. First time is in Genesis 15:1, where he says it to Abraham, who feared that he had no heir. Fear not, Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward. You'll have a son. And through angels and through prophets and in dreams and by apostles and from the lips of Christ. Fear not is what God says to his people. And that's what King David, who is the picture of Christ in this chapter, says to Mephibosheth. I mean you no harm. Your life is not in danger. Fear not. And then David begins to outline all that he intends to do for Mephibosheth. 
he orders Ziba and his 15 sons and 20 employees who have been working the farm of Saul. We don't know exactly how it fell into their hands, whether he was a cousin, another Benjamite. But ever since the death of Saul and the royal family of Mount Gilboa, Ziba and his family have taken over the acreage of Saul's farm in Benjamin. And they've been planting crops, and they've been selling those crops, and they've been making a good living. Now David announces to Ziba there's going to be a change. You and your sons and your employees will continue to work the fields as you have. That at harvest time, you're going to skim profits off the top and you're going to deposit those profits in Mephibosheth's banking account. You'll still make money. But Mephibosheth is going to have a legitimate income. Not that he's going to need it. Because he's going to live in my palace and he's going to eat all of his meals at my table. I'm adopting Mephibosheth as if he were my legitimate heir. He will sit at my table next to my sons. Mephibosheth found that hard to believe. Mephibosheth was delighted that his head was not going to be removed from the rest of his anatomy. He couldn't imagine anything on top of that. Why are you treating a dead dog like this? What's in it for you? Nothing. Nothing. In Titus we read, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He called us out of Lodabar. Not because of works done by us, not because Mephibosheth could bring anything to David that David didn't already own. So we are brought into the kingdom, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see why I say that this chapter of, of all the chapters of Second Samuel is not just the shortest, but the most vivid picture of what Christ, David's royal son, has done for you and has done for me and is illustrated and demonstrated in the table that is before us. Mephibosheth, the shameful one, living in a place of no pasture, he was given life instead of death, peace instead of war, inheritance instead of want, sonship instead of being an orphan, an honored position instead of alienation and disgrace, a place at the king's table instead of the meager scraps of Lodabar. I think this is a 
a wonderful chapter that leads us directly into the Lord's Supper. So rather than reading the passage that is usually read from the first Corinthians 11, which is a good chapter to read, but I want to focus especially on the 12th and 13th verses of the text before us this morning as an invitation to the Lord's table this morning. So Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame. Now he continued to be lame in both his feet. You catch the significance of that. David did not call Mephibosheth on his crutches into the royal office and say, Mephibosheth, we've already got a great orthopedic surgeon here in town. I want you to go get those ankles fixed. And when you can walk into this royal dining room like a man on your own two feet, you can sit at my table. Mephibosheth, a resident, a place of no grass. David invited in his brokenness to come to the table. And as a minister of the gospel in Jesus Christ, it's my privilege to invite you. Not because you're whole, not because you've got it all together, not because you've got strong spiritual anchors, but because you continue to wrestle with the old nature. When Paul tells us in Corinthians that a man ought not to come to the table in an unworthy manner, we might think, well, then who could come? We're all unworthy. We're all sons of Lodabar with broken ankles. That's not what Paul's talking about. To come to the table in an unworthy manner is to think more highly of yourself than you have any reason to think. To think that you have a place here, a right. To come to the table in a worthy manner is to understand that you're a sinner saved by Christ. And as you continue until the day you are taken home or until Jesus comes, you're going to continue to wrestle this table is not for perfect folks. This table, table is for sick folk. This table is to encourage you that all that has ever needed to be done has been done. The great king has sent for you and called you from Lodomar. He's given you a place. He's promised that when that place is ready, he's going to come again and receive you unto himself so that where he is there, you will be also. There's a far greater leader coming. This is a poor, poor prelude. The world would look at this and shake their heads. We see this as a 
preview of the marriage supper of the Lamb when we, with the church triumphant, with our ankles fixed, will dine with our Redeemer. This table ought to greatly encourage you. And I invite you to come. I may get the order out when we're in the new church. If I don't get things right, that's all right. <laughs> Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so very grateful for Scripture. What other book written so many years ago could possibly grab our hearts, encourage us, feed us? Father, we thank you that you put the ninth chapter of Second Samuel in the book. We thank you for its encouragement to us this morning. And in our crippledness, in our brokenness, in our fallenness, we accept your invitation to come and to sup with you. To proclaim once again that our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do so waiting for, anticipating the day when we will all eat in the king's house with the king's people, the redeemed of the Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus.